Hey, good morning. morning. Man, we're gathering. It's not an easy thing on a morning like this. Anybody slide at all? Not too bad. I didn't see any slide offs, so that was encouraging. I saw anybody's patience tested? No. Man, I'm just amazed how slow some of you drive. (laughs) Really? You know, when you get onto a highway and you're, you're stuck on the entrance ramp and you're going behind someone who's been approaching it at 20 miles an hour and they're showing, I'm getting a sense this is how far they're, this is how they're going to drive the whole way. So I was really careful and focused, but I also looked in my rearview mirror and the closest vehicle was half a mile behind me. What are you all doing back there? So... Anyway, I'm glad you got here. So, and we've also been dealing with other things like sickness. My kid's school was closed on Friday. It's too much. So some of your families have been closed. And uh, so we're just glad you're here. Any of you watching a game tonight? What? Some? Are some of you watching even though you actually don't particularly, doesn't really matter to your life? How many of, uh, for how many of you does the outcome of tonight actually sort of deeply matter? Don't be ashamed. Anybody? We have no, like, deeply devoted patriot, okay, just a, a few, or Eagles folks. You know, I don't know if you saw this, but I, I saw a biblical perspective, a Christian perspective on the game and its outcome. There was a church that threw up a sign. Can you put that up on the screen there? So, yeah. Can you read that? How many verses in the Bible are about eagles and how many about patriots. So, who knows? Only time will tell. Anyway, check in tonight and maybe we'll talk about it next Sunday. So, hey, um, believe it or not, I want you to watch a video that was a timely video just about three years ago and it's actually not timely anymore at all except I just want to use it as a reference this morning. Um, it is an invitational video to a covenant, our denominational annual meeting from a couple of years ago when it was being held in Phoenix. And it just was kind of interesting to see who was doing the inviting. So if you can throw up that Gather 15 video right now, just take a look. Hello, members of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Alice Cooper here. I want to invite you to come to my city, Phoenix, Arizona, this summer, June 23rd through the 25th, for Gather 2016. In fact, if you come in a day early, you can get a tour of the Rock at 32nd Street and see all the great programs we offer alongside Genesis Covenant Church, with whom we share the facility. You'll get to see our newly expanded Rock Teen Center, as well as all of the great music and art programs that we offer. You'll even get to see real-life teenagers in captivity and maybe listen to a few jam sessions. I know what you're thinking. Phoenix in June, that's going to be hot. Hey, have you seen pictures of the Arizona Grand Resort? If you're like me, you'll be on the golf course or enjoying the lazy river, and you won't even be thinking about the 110 degree outside, at least not much. Anyway, really hope you can come to Gather 2016. After all, school is out, isn't it? All right. Now, actually, maybe I should ask, Eagles, Patriots, another follow-up question. How many of you actually are, any, any like, Alice Cooper fans who are willing to, like, admit that? <laughs> a couple, okay, okay. 
Uh, uh, almost two weeks ago, when I went to Chicago, I got together on a Sunday evening, uh, right before the beginning meeting for me, with a friend I haven't seen in almost 30 years. Richard, for some of you remember this, Richard was the drummer of the band Raw Meat that I was a part of when I was 12 years old. Some of you have never heard of that, but others of you have, and have provided me with Raw Meat reunion t-shirts. Uh, that reunion tour has not yet taken place, but I did mention it to Richard, so only time will tell. But I clearly remember the day in the spring of our sixth grade year when Richard came to me with great excitement. I think there was an article in Time Magazine that week that he wanted me to know about. And it was about Alice Cooper, and he was really excited because my dad was a pastor, and he wanted me to know that Alice Cooper was the son of a pastor. Uh, but it was a little bit surprising years later to find out that Alice Cooper, through his life, has returned to the faith he was raised in and is actually a serious follower of Jesus. And it's really a kind of interesting story, what took place in this particular um, uh, space, office space, retail space, that was just sitting empty a couple of years ago in Phoenix, and what's happening there now. I didn't meet, Alice, I've never met Alice Cooper, but a couple weeks ago, I saw Oscar Cortez, Oscar Cortez, who's pastor of Esperanza. I ran into him in Chicago, and uh, he introduced me to someone named Hector. And late that afternoon, I was in a workshop, and I happened to be seated right next to the, the, a guy who was presenting at the meeting, and he introduced himself as Pat Stark. And I just heard Pat Stark's name for the first time that morning. Do you know Pat Stark? I've never heard of Pat Stark. I don't know Pat Stark. And Hector's telling me about Pat Stark, and all of a sudden I'm sitting next to Pat Stark. So I talked to Pat Stark afterwards. And I heard the story of what took place in Phoenix over a couple of years Pat told me about Hector, so I went back to Hector. And Hector is an older Hispanic pastor, had no connection with the Covenant Church at all, but he was driving around Phoenix. He went through this particular drive again and again, day after day, and he saw this building, big space, a shopping space, but it was empty and not being used. And he said, you know what? I saw that, and I just had a sense a church is supposed to be in that space. And so I started praying, and every day I would drive by, and every day I would drive back, and every day I would be praying about what would take place in that church. And it was like months past, maybe a year past, and he just kept doing it and doing it until finally he saw some building going on inside, construction work and rehab work going on inside the facility. And so he pulled over and parked his car and walked in and said, what are you doing here? And they said, oh, we're getting a church ready in this space. And wow. And so he ended up meeting Hector. And suddenly a guy by the name of Alice Cooper was right next door using the same space in the same building. And he was developing a program for teens. Most of that stuff works around sports or other things. But guess what Alice Cooper does? He does music and rock music in particular. And so teenagers were coming in, learning how to play different instruments and drums and what have you. And before long, there was this ministry taking place next to this church, and Hector has now started an Hispanic church that is an evangelical covenant church that's just about another 150 feet down the way in another part of this big building. And it's amazing what goes on there. You know what's crazy? There are kids who don't know anything about Jesus who step into Alice Cooper's space and learn how to play instruments. And even before they're Christians, they're invited over into that church to learn the music and to play 
instrumental music on a platform on Sunday morning. Not everybody likes that approach. But you know what's been happening with some of those kids? They've been meeting Jesus because of what happened in their life. You know what's really awesome is when you see a building or a space and you find out that God is present there and he's active and he's at work. He's actually doing something that draws people. He's doing something that helps take people's lives and change them and open up their experience in their life and their understanding to what God really made them for in the first place and how they can truly have a life with the God who made them. Spaces matter, not by themselves. I don't know. I'm sure there are buildings that are just beautiful or impressive. There are great architects who design things and people who know how to design things and make them just stunningly beautiful. But what really matters in the eyes of, of us, I think, ultimately, and the eyes of God is, what is the presence in that place? What goes on there? Who is there? Is there a space for God to be present and to show himself? Or not? Is God not welcome in that place? Is there something or is it empty? Exodus, as the, the screen just showed us, and as uh, many of you, and I invite all of you to be participating in reading the book Beginnings, you're going to be exploring the second half of the book of Exodus this week. And as you read that portion of the story, after the escape from Egypt, after the escape from slavery, God's people have gotten away. They've been through the Red Sea. God rescued them and preserved them in a moment of great danger. They're still at Sinai. They're still getting ready to move on, but they're safe in this moment. And God is communicating. He's got something to say to them. He's already spoken to them. He said, I want you to be my people. You are the results of my blessing on your great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. A man who was old and with no kids. And now look at you. Look what's happened to his family. He did have a son. And that son was productive. And his sons and daughters were productive. And here you are. I want you to be my people. I've rescued you from what you were and where you were. I've set you free. And I'm on the way to taking you to a very special place. A special place will be God's land for God's people. And I'm going to be there with you. I want you to know who you are. And I want you to know who I am. I want you to trust me above all else. God was inviting people close. But it wasn't simple and it wasn't easy. And the story, you just saw some of the story and the way it folded out. The way that God was present on that mountain in a way that was real and visible and tangible almost. They, they felt it. They experienced it. But there was something frightening about God's presence. There was something so huge about it. It sort of drew people but it also sort of repelled them. God said, I want you to be my people, but he also said, don't get too close. What's that all about? I want you to think for a moment. Is there anybody that you have really, and maybe you've already fulfilled this, somebody you always wanted to meet, somebody you always wanted to see, somebody you wanted to get close to, and that was like a goal in your life. Maybe it was just an item on your bucket list. Maybe it was just something that, that was interesting. I'm, I'm actually going to take a chance 
Anybody shout out the name of someone you always wanted to see up close and in person and maybe even meet? And it's either happened or hasn't happened yet? Probably someone famous. Neil Diamond. Diamond. Okay. Neil Diamond. Say this again. Mickey Hart. Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead. The drummer. drummer. Okay. Who else? Winston Marsalis. Marsalis. Oprah. Oprah. Billy Graham? Brett Favre. Favre. Hmm. Richard? Feynman. Feynman. Right. I thought you said Richard Blatt, the drummer for Raw Meat for a minute, but I I was just... (laughs) All right. So here's the thing. I, I think that's a common experience for us, and I want you to think about a man named Moses... Moses, who was 80 years old, who had a lot of experience in his life. His life was very unique. The way he was born, the way he almost died, the way he was rescued, the way he was raised, the way he was nurtured, the way he grew up into a confident leader, the way that all fell apart so quickly when he took things into his own hands at the age of 40 and suddenly he realized he had to get out of there. He had to run for his life to get away from Egypt. The way he he spent all those decades way out somewhere, in the wilderness, raising sheep, getting married, having some kids, but far away from his people and what he thought his life was going to be all about. And now he's 80 years old. I don't know what it's like to be 80. I I think I will someday. It's not usually the moment when you are getting ready to be a major leader on the world front and you've never been before. But that's what God did with Moses. And Moses has now confronted one of the world powers and he has spoken strongly and clearly, even if left to himself, he had very little, very little in the way of communication power. Even if he had very little confidence in and of himself, God was with him and God used him and those people were set free now. And, and Moses was increasingly realizing the challenge, not that it was over, the challenge of leading these people. When he went up to the mountain and he saw God and he had that experience, whatever it was like, the the power of God's presence so close with Moses. And then he came down with those two tablets with with the laws and the instructions for uh, what have you that God was having them construct, these words for their lives. And he saw what had taken place among God's people. A people who had been loved by God and rescued by God and cared for by God and protected by God and sheltered by God and saved by God. And now just days later, they were creating idols and worshiping other gods. Moses was disgusted. He threw those tablets down. They were were broken immediately. And God was both pained and angry about what had happened. And Moses and God had that dialogue referred to. It sounded like God was done with the people. And Moses spoke out on behalf of the people. And that's a whole other topic, as it alluded to, the depth of that conversation, all what that means for our understanding prayer and our understanding who God is. But one of the things that, that Moses realized as God was saying, okay, Moses, I'm going to keep going, not just with you, but with these people, is Moses needed to know God even better than he ever had before. How's he really going to be the leader God wants him to be? And so he said, God... I've got a request for you. As much as you've shared with me, as much as you've spoken to me, as much as you've um, shown me so much, I have another request. I want to see your glory. 
I want to see you as I never have before. I don't think it was just that Moses was just curious, that Moses just wanted some fantastic experience. It was that Moses felt like he needed to see God. He needed to draw closer to God than he ever had before. And God said to him, Moses, (laughs) I don't know if you know what you're asking for. To see me, to see me in all my reality, in all my power, in all my brilliance and my holiness and my perfection. To see my face, to see my glory. You won't survive it. But I will show to you my goodness. And so God has set up this little um, situation, so to speak. He said, he found a rock and a cleft, a crevice in that rock. And he said, if you come in here, you'll be sheltered. And I will pass by. And you will see my goodness. And you will see something of my glory. I want to read the words from the beginning. We're going to throw up on the screen from uh, Exodus chapter 34, the first 10 verses. Describe that scene that then unfolded. It goes like this. And then the Lord told Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one else may come with you. In fact, no one is to appear anywhere on the mountain. Do not even let the flocks or the herds graze near the mountain. And so Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones. Early in the morning he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. And he said, O Lord, if it's true that I've found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people. But please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. And the Lord replied, listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to see those last two verses. Um, I'm going to put them up in in an older version called the Revised Standard Version. I just want you to listen to these again. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I want to think with you this morning for a few moments about what Moses discovered and what he experienced and what God through Moses has shared with you and me. Because the truth is, although none of us have, um, as far as I can see, a task that equals anything like 
at the ultimate level, like what Moses had been called by God to do, the truth is, all of us are invited to a life with God through Jesus Christ. All of us are, are called and invited to really knowing him, and we're called to live a life with purpose and intention that follows in the path that God has laid out. And how are we going to do that? We can't know him, and we can't live life the way we were created to live it if we don't actually, sounds redundant, know him, to know God. For so many people, God is a mystery, and even for a lot of Christians, when you get right down to it, we're not sure what to say. We're not sure how much we know about him. But God revealed himself in a special way. Moses said, God, I want to see you. But when God came by, you know what's amazing? Moses saw something, but most of all, Moses heard something. We like to see. Don't you like to see? I love to see. I love to see things. There's a reality when you see something. Sometimes we don't like words that much. We love what we can see with our eyes. Let's face it. Which uh, communication means is winning out these days? I offer you a large, large screen or a small, small, but still thousand-page book. Which is easier to deal with? Which is easier? (laughs) The screen. This is true back then, too. Moses wanted to see. But there's something dangerous about seeing. We're easily manipulated by what we see. We're easily confused by what we see. We're easily mesmerized by what we see. We're actually easily addicted by what we see. There's something dangerous about it. Especially when you're trying to meet a God who's a spirit. And so God's number one means of communication was to speak. He was present. He was involved. He was active. He was doing. But he spoke. And I want you to listen again to what he said. And we just want to understand a bit more about this God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Let's keep those RSV words up there. That last version. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I want to take a few moments with you and describe for you God. Until now, if someone had asked, who is God? They would have answered real simply like this. God is the one who created the world. God is the one who created Adam and Eve. God is the one who sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. God is the one who was pleased with Noah. God is the one who judged the world with the flood. God is the one who called Abraham. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The Jewish people were given a way of knowing God and describing God, and it was always tied to what God did. God is a God of action. What's the story? Tell me the story. What did God do? How did he show up? How was he involved? That's the number one way we know God is through what he does. Who is God? God is the God who sent his son Jesus because he loved you and me and this whole world so much. That's who God is. But in Exodus 34, in this moment, God is revealing something a step further to Moses. He's actually finally telling him, this is not just what I did, but this is who I am, and this is what I am like. The Lord, 
the Lord. I'm a God with a name. And my name means I am who I am. I'm the one who has always been, always will be, and I am right now. I'm the God who's been with you in the past, and I'm the God of promise. I will be with you in the future. That is my name. You're not I am. You once didn't exist. And if I didn't hold you into in existence, you would simply cease to exist. You'd disappear. Left to yourselves, you're like dust. But I am Yahweh. And then he goes on to describe what this God who is and who was and who is to come is really like. He's a God merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. A God who's compassionate. A God who cares for people. That word, merciful or compassionate, is a word that tells us how God thinks about us. You know, the word compassion in the Bible is a gut word. It's a word that actually is related to the word womb. I don't know if that was in Moses' mind when he was writing this at all, but that's the root of the word, a womb. It's, it's, it's kind of like compassion is the kind of feeling a mother has for a child that she is carrying within her from the first moment of existence all the way to birth. And when that child is set free from that womb, that mom holds and continues to care and devotes her life. And when that child smiles, she smiles. And when that child is in pain and confused or falling apart, that mom feels it with the child. That's what compassion is. And God is this infinite, eternal being who has that kind of compassion for his children, for you and me. God doesn't just know things. God feels things. God's just not aware of you, but he cares about you. Is that astounding? So many gods who have been created or described by other religions have nothing like that at all. But this God, It's a God of compassion. In Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, uh, the psalmist says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As a father or as a mother shows compassion. That's at our best with our kids, with people in need. That's what God is always like. That's who he is compassionate, merciful. He's also a God who is gracious. Some translations here, like the New Living Translation, actually use the expression merciful here. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God who cares to give us what we don't deserve and what we don't have coming. He, he, he is good to us beyond all human calculation. Maxie Dunham tells the story of a woman who took a friend with her when she went to a photographer to have her picture taken. Uh, The beauty parlor had done its best for her, this woman. She took her seat in the studio and fixed her pose. And while the photographer was adjusting his lights in preparation for taking the shot, she said to him, now be sure to do me justice. And the friend who had accompanied her said with a twinkle in her eye, my dear, what you need is not justice but mercy. (laughs) You know, that is who God is. God is a God of justice. But here's something we are all grateful for. 
He doesn't just give us what we have coming. He doesn't treat us exactly as we deserve because that actually would not be good. God is a God who's merciful. He cares for us when we don't deserve it. He gives us what we don't have coming. He loves us in a way we have never loved him. That's astounding. A God who is compassionate and merciful and gracious. You know what else is true about this God? He is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Any of you familiar with the opposite of that? Do you know what is to be um, uh, familiar with anyone who watches you and is ready to pounce? Are you like that? Uh, ready to, to pounce? Loving sometimes to catch someone doing it wrong or blowing it? You know people like that? Or do you ever have moments in your own life when you're like that? I used to think that I was extraordinarily slow to anger, but in my lifetime, I've discovered I'm not always like that. That there are things that can happen in certain situations involving certain people, and the the anger rises. Where did it come from? I didn't know it existed. But you know who God is? God is a God who's slow to anger. It's almost like there's one commentator says this. It's it's like he is reluctant to act against his creation even when it is in rebellion against him. (laughs) Just think about how God is treating these people. Yes, Moses dialogued with them about it and said, uh, God, please remember your promise. Stick with them. But think about it. God set them free, and they uh, they were barely free when they were starting to complain and whine and want to go back. Thanks a lot. You don't trust me at all. You don't appreciate what I've given you. I've set you free, and now you want to go back to slavery? Oh. I can imagine uh, if I'd been God, just in that very moment, saying, ungrateful, I'm done. Just walking away, if nothing else. But God is a God who is... (laughs) Uh, the, the thing about anger is, uh, uh, in the old language, it was something about a burning in the nose. You get that feeling when you're really angry and it's starting to affect the way you feel in your body? And, and the, word to, the expression to be slow to anger is, is to be long in the nose. Like something stretched out. Like God doesn't go to pounce. He doesn't respond to everything in the minute. In fact, Peter says in Second Peter... That God is not slow as we count slow, but he's patient with us as human beings. He wants us to have time to respond and wants us to have time to come close to him and be near him. Uh, He's a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not just love, but steadfast love. Not just love, but enduring love. Not just any kind of love, not just an emotional love, because that comes up and goes down, but a love that sticks with us over and over again through all the difficulties and through all the failures and through all the challenges, and it does not disappear, and it doesn't cease to be. God's love is steadfast. Maybe it's something related to slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He sticks with us. He's abounding in steadfast love and abounding in faithfulness. God is true. What God says is true. What God commits himself, he commits himself to. When God makes a promise, he follows through. This is the God 
that Moses is hungry to see. He is a God who forgives iniquity. Do you even care about that? Sometimes I think we as Christians get so used to the idea of forgiveness of sins, and we hear about it in the gospel, and we take it for granted, and we are so concerned about other things that we want from God that we cease to recognize the power of forgiveness. And do you know what it's like to hold on to something against yourself, though? To not be able to forget something, to not be able to forgive something, to not be able to let go of something that you screwed up and something you were wrong about, or maybe something that's gripping you right now? Do you know what it's like to have some kind of sin, whether it's big or little, enter a relationship and enter a family or a marriage or a business relationship, and suddenly it is not right, and it doesn't go away, and there is not forgiveness, and there is this weight that is weighing down on the marriage, on the family, on the business, on the individuals. The lack of forgiveness is profoundly destructive. But that word for forgive means this, to take a burden off of someone. That's what it means to forgive. When God comes to us and he picks up a weight that is weighing us down, weighing us down in our lives, weighing us down with others, weighing us down with him, sets us free from that, to have some other kind of life. And what does God forgive? What does he forgive? He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Is that all just redundant? I think what God is saying to Moses is Moses. Every kind of sin and failing you can imagine. I'm a God who forgives. I forgive. I want to throw a quote up on the screen right now from a writer. Um, Frederick Buechner is now 91 years old. He's getting to be an old man. Still around. He's actually a Presbyterian, ordained Presbyterian pastor. Most of all, he's a writer. Once upon a time, he's like a chaplain or something at one of those... um, upper-class uh, prep schools out east way back when. And one of his students was a, was a kid by the name of John Irving who later went on to become a very famous writer. The World According to Garp and the Hotel New Hampshire and on and on. And about 1990, uh, John Irving wrote a novel called A Prayer for Owen Meany. Really interesting, profound novel. And right before the very first page, on the, on the page right before that, he put a quote from one of... Uh, Frederick Buechner's sermons that he preached in the chapel at the press school when he was a kid. And I just want to read these words. Uh, Buechner said, Not the least of my problems that I can hardly even imagine what kind of an experience a genuine, self-authenticating religious experience would be without somehow destroying me in the process. How could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there were no room for doubt there would be no room for me. Um, I, I want that, Look at that middle sentence again. Without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? I think Buechner is describing exactly what God and Moses were up against when Moses said, God, I want to see you. I really want to see you entirely. I want to see you in all your glory. And God says to Moses, Moses, you couldn't quite take it. Do you know what? You and I, to this day, couldn't quite take it. But God found a way for us to experience him 
up close and personal in a way that would not obliterate us or wipe us away. And do you know what that way is? Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, chapter that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and on and on. It culminates in that portion by saying this, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Later, Jesus on the night of his betrayal was talking to some friends and um, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. One of the speakers at Midwinter, Alan Hirsch, said this. You know what's really amazing and very good and very true? Jesus is like God. In fact, Hirsch said, Jesus, I believe Jesus is God. But you know what's even more astounding? That God is like Jesus. God is Christ-like. In fact, there is nothing in God that is not Christ-like. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God well enough to live the life God calls you to and offers you? Then you need to look at Jesus. You can't go wrong if you get close to Jesus. You can't go wrong if you follow him. You can't go wrong if you look to him. You can't go wrong if you approach him. Right now, in a very tangible way, that's exactly what I invite you to do. Some of you maybe for the very first time, but some of you for the umpteenth time, that you would draw close to Jesus with other brothers and sisters in this way by participating in the meal he offers us. Look at him and you will see God.